Even if you don't realize it, you are an expert in the business of predicting the future. When you get behind the wheel of a car, throw or catch a ball, change jobs or move to a new country, you're making a series of predictions about what will happen next in your life and in the world. But what do we really mean when we talk about the future? Can we genuinely know something about the world in 25, 50 or 100 years? Are all predictions of the future equally likely to be right or wrong? And how can we make our predictions more accurate? I'm Clara Bertrand, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Our guest on this episode is Professor David Christian, the inventor of the new field of big history, a discipline that tells the story of the universe from the Big Bang to the present day. In his new book, Future Stories, he has turned his attention to the rest of time, investigating what we can know about the world to come. He's joined in conversation with the former head of communications for the Pictet Group, Stephen Barber. Reading your latest book, Future Stories, I mean, I, I, at times my head was spinning trying to grasp some of the ideas that um, you express in there. I mean, first of all, the very notion of what is the future, this, this, this point between the past and the future, and what is its nature? And even you explore somewhat the nature of time and these two ideas of time, time being like a flow and time being maybe like a map, time having a direction or time having a no direction or being cyclical. Tell me something about how you see the present and that division between past and future. <laughs> when I took on this project of trying to write a book about the future and what we mean by the future and how we cope with it, I did it partly partly because I thought I'd, I'd sort of told a story about the past, and now it, was, it would be interesting to tell a story about the rest of time. But the other reason was because I realized that I'm a professional historian. I spent a lot of time thinking about the past, but we don't, in our schools, teach about the future. We don't help young people think about what we mean by the future. And yet, as one of the great futurologists put it, that's where we're going to live the rest of our lives. So having some grip on ideas about the future, even if those ideas are kind of messy and complicated and contradictory, I thought would be helpful. So I tried to put together ideas about the future in a sort of handbook. And I had to begin, of course, by asking what we mean by the future. And I eventually realized that modern science is pretty deeply committed, not all scientists, but is pretty deeply committed to the idea that the future really is open to a certain extent. You know, there are powerful general rules, but the details of the future and details which may really matter to you and me are actually open. And I think it's quantum physics that first forced many scientists to think of the future of reality itself as unpredictable, as probabilistic, mm -hmm. as having this sort of random element. If that's true, then choices are real. 
morality is real, and thinking about the future is worth doing. And by the way, there's one argument that now, I don't know whether it would stand up at a, at a, at a conference of, of philosophers of time, but it seems to me a very powerful argument for thinking that the future really is open, is that biology, natural selection, seems to have equipped every living organism with methods of coping with uncertain futures. Now, if the future was already locked up, tied up, that wouldn't make any sense at all. So I think the fact that we have ways of dealing with uncertain futures is perhaps one of the best proofs that the future really is, to some extent, open. We really do have choices. We really do have to make choices about the future and decide which future we're most likely to meet. It would be pretty depressing if we were to, I mean, the idea of, if you like, the strong form of determinism in which everything in the universe, the interactions and the causations between atoms and so on, just determines everything that happens and that our brains are just following a mechanical path in the same way. That would be very depressing because it would mean that we couldn't influence what we see is happening. As you say, that that maybe the the evolution of quantum physics has has really put to bed that theory. I think from the time of Newton, really, until the late 19th century, most scientists were inclined to think that the universe really was deterministic, that that the feeling that the universe is open was a sort of illusion, because we could never hope to have enough information to really predict the future, but actually it was predetermined. So that that was a real sea change in scientific thinking. And I agree. It, it, it's very. It depresses me the the thought that everything is 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 locked up, and I think it creates a sort of. This is putting it romantically, but it creates a sort of beauty about lives, um, and it gives them a significance that they they would not have otherwise. I think so. It's a very very important distinction between the idea of a deterministic and a non-deterministic universe. And if we live in a non-deterministic universe, then we have to start thinking, okay, how do I deal with the future? And that's where we can begin to sort of form or tease out some of the rules that we use instinctively in our daily life to deal with the future and all living organisms use as well. In a sense, what I was trying to do was tease out the basic rules about preparing for the future. And the basic rules that not just humans, but all animals, indeed bacteria, as you know, there's a whole chapter about how E. coli prepare for the future. What are the rules of thinking about the future? And I think actually they're very simple indeed. I mean, the, the first one is if we accept the indeterminacy of modern science, then we really have no evidence about the future itself. There's no evidence coming from the future. The historian Collingwood said, we shouldn't bother thinking about the future because we have no documents from the future. And he was absolutely right. So we have no evidence from the future. But what we do have is the knowledge that in the past, in some domains of reality, there were regularities. So this business of distinguishing between different domains of reality, those in which there are regular processes, 
that we can plausibly project into the future. So, for example, the sun rises every morning. I'm willing to put a lot of money on the fact that it will rise tomorrow. So there are things we can predict, not because we have documents from the future, but because we are so certain that in the past, this has always happened. These things have always happened. There are other domains in which you can't predict, or at least you can't predict so easily. So so we have to think of reality as moving from domains in which prediction is fairly easy to domains in which it's fiendishly difficult and probably impossible. And people like diviners, you know, our anxieties about the future mean we're always trying to push a bit further. We're always trying to find more certainty about the future in domains where it's not certain. And strangely, one of those domains is if humans are taking decisions. If you have a million humans taking decisions, we can predict Demographers can predict with quite a lot of confidence about the future population of the world in 20, 30 years. What they won't ever try to do is predict whether couple A and B are going to have, how many children they're going to have. So that means that politics, paradoxically, is an area that's really tough to predict in. Economics is another area. So on an issue like climate change, for example, it means Climate scientists can tell us that if we keep pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we can project with quite a lot of confidence what the temperature, the global temperatures will be in the year 2000. What we cannot predict with any confidence is whether humans will actually do the things necessary to ensure a good climate future. So there are these different domains. So when you're predicting the future, whether you're an E. coli bacterium or you're a modern weather forecaster, what you're doing is you're looking at regular trends in the past and seeing how much you can build on them with how much confidence. I'd like to come back to this subject of climate change because that's possibly the greatest challenge that faces humanity, the future of humanity on the planet. This is something that we understand pretty well, the science, as you said, the causation behind climate change and the possible potential consequences. And we're very likely seeing the evidence of that today. I mean, in America, I read today, there's a, I mean, Washington DC is is sweating in sort of 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees centigrade, whilst there are, there are snowstorms a couple of hundred miles away. It's extraordinary. Um, now, so we see what's happening. We have the ability to act, but how do we do that? And what really struck me, and this maybe this is the emotional side to it, you talked about how important it is to imagine possible futures. And to imagine possible, and I was very struck by this 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 quote from H. G. Wells, talking about the First World War, who said, "To fight, you must imagine the future you are fighting for." So, could you say something about that and how we, what we need to be able to do to act collectively, and in your metaphor, maybe as collectively in the way that a multicellular organism works together to ensure the continued survival of the whole? If we think of these two domains of reality, one is 
a world in which there are very complex but mechanical, essentially mechanical processes going on. And that's what is studied by climate scientists. And they've now got enough of a grip on that world that, as you were saying, they can tell us with great confidence what the consequences will be of increasing levels of global global warming gases. Now, in fact, we can we can now tell this story going back billions of years. We can track over whole, the whole of planetary history how changing levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen have affected the temperatures at the surface of Earth and essentially kept an Earth that has liquid water at its surface. That's the crucial thing for living organisms to have survived over four billion years. This is why we're different from Mars or Venus. So they know that. Then there's the other domain. There's the domain of politics. And I think this is why historians are so skeptical about thinking about the future, because in the domain of politics, where you're dealing with people, situations where people make decisions, prediction is so much harder. So so that's why predicting what we will do about the future is extremely difficult. But we do know certain things. I I came out of this book more of an optimist than, than when I went in. There are, if you look at trends in the past that might provide guidance to the future, and if you habitually think on very large scales, as I do, then you need to look at very deep trends, trends that go across the whole of human history, for example. One of those is technological creativity, fantastic technological creativity, for better and worse. I mean, we've created nuclear weapons, but this incredible, quite exceptional ingenuity of our species explains why we now dominate the planet. But it's a hopeful sign because it means that a sort of technological optimism has a rational basis in past trends. The past trend over the whole of human history is that humans keep spinning new ideas about how to manage their environments. So if we discover we have a new problem now about climate change, we should expect solutions to turn up. And the other issue is collaboration, which you mentioned. We are, despite the many battles and conflicts that are going on in the world, and the conflicts over identities, over cultures, over religions, despite that, we're a profoundly collaborative species. And again, that is a deep trend in human history. It goes back to the beginning of human history. And now the networks are global. They used to be local. They're now global. So we are talking from one side of the planet to the other in real time as if we lived in a medieval village. That's an absolutely astonishing thing. So the tools for collaboration on a global scale now exist. And I think the crucial thing probably is finding the ways of thinking that will help motivate people to see themselves as part of a global network, not as members of, well, I mean, they will always carry on seeing themselves as members of nations or particular religions and so on, but can people learn to see themselves also as citizens of humanity? Because we're now a global species and we cannot solve issues like global warming or the threat of nuclear war nation by nation.
It's a project that will require collaboration at a global scale. So this is not utopian. It's an educational project to help people see themselves as members of a global species. So in this um, era, which is becoming known as the Anthropocene, the era in which we can clearly see how humans have affected and are affecting the whole biosphere in a way that wasn't the case hundreds of thousands of years ago, perhaps when we... You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't the case, I think, even 150 years ago. Yeah. So we are affecting the planet visibly, clearly, but we are also now able to influence it for the good as well as the bad. And we must do that. We, we can't escape from that responsibility. Absolutely. Um, we, we cannot escape from it for the simple reason that we are already managing a planet, hmm. for better or worse. It, it's not a choice we face any longer. What we do or don't do in the next 20 or 30 years will shape the future of planet Earth and millions of other species for thousands of years, perhaps for millions of years. Let me suggest an analogy, but in a sometimes in a business context, if, if you look at theories of managing or introducing change in a business, what's 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 conventionally said is that first of all, people have to understand the problem why change is necessary. Well, first of all, they have to recognize the problem. Then they have to understand why the change is necessary and need to understand how to do it. And then often business leaders forget the third stage, which is the emotional conviction that people need to have. So the yeah. final stage where each of those people involved needs to be able to say to themselves, and I want to do it. I want yeah. that to happen. Now, with, with climate change, I think you know it, it's probably the majority of the world's population who under, understand what's happening, and they understand perhaps why we should change, but they haven't reached the final stage of, you know, I want this to happen. And others yeah. have still, I mean, I, of course, well, you, you give some figures on, on, on subsistence, I think, in the book about falling from, I mean, those living at the subsistence levels falling from 50% to 10%, I forget the exact figures, but over the last 50 years. But there are still a significant minority of people who have lived from day to day thinking about their future over the next few days or hours even, and not over the next decades. And that's, yeah. that's still a problem. For me, I, I mean, one of the reasons for optimism, I think, is I think about my own education when I was young. 50 years ago, no education about climate change, very little understanding of the problem, very little understanding of its urgency. So there has been a huge sea change, I think, over the last 50 years. You think of the Paris Accords. It's easy to be cynical about things like that or the uh, global sustain sustainability goals. But for every nation of the United Nations to commit to limiting greenhouse warming to 1.5 degrees, to commit to the global sustainability goals is absolutely astonishing compared with where we were 50 years ago. So a lot of that process that you described so well has happened. My own feeling, and I've just been writing, uh, trying to write an article um, 
for a discussion on, on all of this. My own feeling is that what we're going to need is a sort of gestalt switch, it, very similar to the one that astronauts had. I think almost everyone who's been to space has come back and said, I suddenly saw the world in a new way. I could suddenly see the whole world. I wasn't seeing particular countries. I wasn't seeing particular cities. I could see the whole world. And I could, that is very close to the emotional shift, I think, that you're talking about. So how can we help people towards that? I think we're sort of on our way, but there's an educational project here. And that's why I think something like Big History could be so important because it helps you, most of the ways we educate, most of the ways we think involve looking at different parts of the world through different lenses. On that relatively optimistic note, I think, and as, as the river of time has advanced, <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much indeed, Professor David Christian, for that extraordinary and fascinating insight into past and the future. And thank you very much for the interview. I've re- very much enjoyed the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode of Founding Conversation starred David Christian and the host was Stephen Barber. The show is a collaboration between PICTE, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and How To Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Claire Bertrand, Vasily Christodoulou, and Emma Sonta. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can always find a film version of this episode and many more conversations on our website. Thanks for listening.